0: Welcome to the College Commons Podcast, passionate perspectives from Judaism's leading thinkers. Brought to you by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, Dean of HUC's Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles, and your host. Welcome to this episode of the College Commons Podcast, where we will have the pleasure of getting to know Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg. Rabbi Ruttenberg was ordained at the Ziegler School of Rabbinical Studies in 2008, and she is an award-winning author. She's written seven books, earning many awards, as well as pieces for The New York Times, The Atlantic, among others. She was also named by Newsweek and The Daily Beast as one of the Ten Rabbis to Watch and by the forward, as one of the top 50 most influential women rabbis. And she was called a Wunderkind of Jewish Feminism by Publishers Weekly. Rabbi Ruttenberg, Dania, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you.
1: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So I'd like to begin by approaching some of your presentations that seem perhaps the most personal uh, about your really beautiful Heschelian, if that's an adjective we can use, approach to parenting as an opportunity to find wonder and connection. It's it's really a compelling view. Um, but I was struck in listening and reading um, your material that there's an element that feels a moment to moment about it, and I wonder if it's if if our capacity to find wonder requires us to resign ourselves to moments and not to a constant state of being as if the highs of radical amazement that you refer to from Heschel kind of require the pedantry of all the space in between those moments.
1: Yeah. I mean, we cannot live on the bliss train as a permanent state. We just, we just don't even, you know, the Zen saying, you know, before enlightenment you chop wood and carry water and after enlightenment, you chop wood, carry water. And certainly the profound moments and the work of spiritual practice is to change you and transform you so that these moments, I mean, for a lot of reasons, right? Part of it is so that you can be the kind of person who is uh, more useful to a world in need of healing. But part of it is that if you do your spiritual practice and you try to plug in um, to bigness and wonder in an intentional regular basis, then your capacity to find this place becomes easier and easier and those muscles get stronger. And you know, some people have a traditional prayer practice. Some people make art. Some people um, meditate. Whatever, there are a lot of ways to express spiritual practice. And you know, what I argue in Nurture the Wow is that these, these extraordinary, wonderful moments with our children, that showing up and trying to be fully present with them is a spiritual practice also. And just like in prayer, you know, you don't feel that that rush, that sort of spiritual rush every single time you pray, if you pray regularly. But days where it feels uh, less like the marathon and more like the walk around the park. Um, so too with your kids. You're going to have some days that are amazing and beautiful and you're smelling the flowers and you're looking at the ants and you're enjoying uh, this exquisite now together and sometimes you're just helping with math homework right sometimes you're just trying to work on your patients um it,
0: it, it seems like there's you know? it's even more than that it's that you have to commit to the pedantry uh and you have to keep looking in the pedantry for the moments when it does come out it's it's it's, a, it's almost a commitment to to not seeing it in order to when ready see it
1: yes i mean. You have to be able to go looking for it in these little moments um, to raise a, the holy sparks, if you will, of whether it's you know sweeping up the piece from the ground or cleaning the sick out of the shirt or just waking up in the middle of the night with the child who had a nightmare, and in, even in those very mundane feeling moments, to try to look and find, you know, how fleeting and precious it is and it's never ever going to be 100% right if you're not if you're a parent and you are not feeling like you're on the bliss train most of the time you're not doing it wrong
0: <laughs> right, right right right. i, I mean were, you know, were, like it's were, real yeah. and it's
1: hard and the work of trying to sh- just show up some of the time is um is really hard and you know if in those moments every once in a while you can try to catch yourself figuring out where the holy spark is in this moment, um, the more you can do it, the easier it is to get to that place.
0: Have you have you had a moment uh, recently to share with us?
1: Yeah, sure. I my, my kids were off school today, and it was sort of a long day. And then, um, you know, there was this moment when my seven-year-old and my four-year-old were just sort of piled on top of me. And, you know, for a second, we were just goofing off and then there's that moment of sort of you know feeling their skin you know on my skin and you know just snuggling them and um and kind of remembering uh how precious this is and you know there's these moments when you can scale back and you know like this child has gotten so big this child is still so little and to kind of see it in the big picture Um, and it can be you know it's breathtaking
0: yeah i think any parent knows what you're talking about so i'd like to pick up on your writing Um, i i went to your website and looked at some of your recent tweets that you you foregrounded and i want to um i want to cite one of them and then talk to you about it uh you recently tweeted uh quote PSA, public service announcement, because I guess it needs to be said, question mark. Appropriating other people's symbols, rituals, liturgy isn't interfaith work. Rather, it hinders it. Building genuine relationships out of trust and connection is interfaith work, close quote. So I want to contextualize that a bit for our listeners because it it was uh, part of uh, a thread that uh, included a bunch of comments from individuals, tweets, that gave uh, brief anecdotes or illustrations of what for the most part appeared to be cultural appropriation or potentially cultural appropriation. So just one example was a uh, a tweeter who uh, walked into a public school and saw a Christmas tree and queried the Christmas tree, it being a public school, and the person at the desk said, oh, that, that's precisely why we made the Christmas tree in uh, blue and white trim, as if to connect uh, sort of, or, or, or indicate that it was for all religions or what have you. Um, and there were other, other cases along uh, the, the, the thread, and people can follow it at your, um, on your account. Uh, here's, here's my question, though. Uh, Yes, I agree that appropriating other people's symbols, rituals, etc. isn't interfaith work, but it it does strike me as a very, very fine line to walk when uh, we live in a world of monotheisms that dominate. Certainly, they don't monopolize the religious landscape, but they do dominate it. Uh, And all monotheisms are, to some degree or another, an appropriation of Judaism, aren't they?
1: Um, Yes, but there's a different... A difference between, say, the Christian practice of using incense, the Catholic practice of using incense, which was, clearly came from the temple. You know, there are a lot of things that, are, um, that, that obviously came from Judaism, but it's, we know what a Jewish practice is now. You know, if somebody says, is a menorah something that's okay for a Christian to purchase and light, A... It's highly unlikely that in the time of Jesus, um, a menorah was, up, you know, like, Jesus didn't wasn't lighting the hadokia, right? Oh. It just wasn't. Like, that was a rabbinic innovation. Um, that was after Jesus' time. So it's not Christian. There's no legitimacy there. And critically, this is not something that developed over however many centuries of slow evolution to become its own thing. Baptism may originally be from Mikvah, but... Uh, it's been 2,000 years, like we can, you know, they've gone on gone our separate paths. Um, we know when something's Jewish. Just as if someone was going to say, like, I want to I sprinkle you with um, with powder, with colored powder would be a delightful way to celebrate Purim. It's like, no, 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 that's, a, that's holy is an Indian practice, right? It's not ours. Not everything ha- gets to be ours. Not everything gets to be everybody else's. We know. It's, there aren't a lot uh, of fuzzy lines where it's really not clear, you know?
0: But it does seem like what you're saying is if you get away with it for long enough, then you've you've sort of, uh, you got dibs. If you do Easter, which is really Passover, <coughs> and it becomes t- too much inertia for us to really object about, then okay, we won't object.
1: I I don't know. I mean, listen, the rabbis changed... Our tefillah, the uh, Ten Commandments, used to be part of the everyday worship service, and the rabbis at a certain point took it out. Um, it was said next to the Shema, and they took it out because it became a Christian practice, and they wanted to differentiate a little bit, make it a little bit, you know, a little more clarity. Um, traditions always change, and the Ten Commandments is still a critical part of Christianity, right? But um, traditions are going to change however they're going to change, but that doesn't mean that for those of us who, for who, like, who are owners of a tradition and embedded in that tradition, that doesn't mean that we don't get to say, like, dude, this is, uh, this is ours.
0: I mean, I, first of all, on the emotional level, I completely identify with your position. As an ethno-religious minority, I do claim the idea of cultural ownership. Mm-hmm. But I also grapple mightily with its futility. It's a it's a it's absurd in its way the minute you take a step back and look at it almost academically. It's uh I mean we look at so many things that we've appropriated as Jews from majority culture.
1: But uh, it's see here's the thing though, is is the, the word I'm gonna keep coming back to is organic. Um you know, there's uh uh, there are all of these ways that Judaism has changed because of feminism, for example. Right, and we have taken this idea that was born out in dominant culture. Right, feminism basically didn't it did not come from inside Judaism. It came from outside in secular enlightenment, whatever. Um, and we took this idea and we incorporated it into our rituals and our practices and our traditions and our ways of being and Judaism has grown and changed and shifted as a result of that. And there are other ways that, you know, meetings of cultures, right. You know, what, what happened, what uh, Jewish culture looks like in, in Mumbai is different than what Jewish culture looks like in Fez. And it's different from what Jewish culture looks like in Istanbul or, uh, you know, in Minsk or wherever, right. Historically there's always been melting and blending in what we eat and, um, how we celebrate and what books we read that influence our next philosophy, you know, and all of that, of course, but it's, there's something organic about it and it's, it's, it is not walking into somebody's store and saying, okay, this is mine now. It's, um, a natural consequence of nature neighbors, you know, talking and learning from one another over hundreds of years. The natural melding of cultures that happen that has happened over, you know, almost every human civilization, probably since we've had people living in places, um, is different than, you know, this sort of colonialist, if you will, idea of I'm going to waltz in somewhere. Oh, you've got a thing. Cool, I'll take it. Um
0: I, you know, I agree. It's different, but I think that everything that feels organic and natural started off with a colonial spark—a pure, unmitigatedly appropriating colonial grab.
1: I, 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 I don't agree with that. I think there are times and places when we have uh, learned from one another and developed relationships, and you know, and. Uh, there has fusions have emerged in, you know, in a way that's not, you know, it's not like Jews got to India and we're like, hi, we're Jews, you know, we eat curry now. It's, I mean, it was not, you know.
0: (laughs) Well, part of it's the fictionality of the, the the more enfranchised to the less enfranchised or vice versa. So when American music gets inflected by some relatively shameless appropriations of African-American music, Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, you could go back to that spark of colonialism and you could make an argument. Mm -hmm. However, you talk about Jews who are relatively uh, unenfranchised or at least a minority in India adopting majority cultures. It doesn't feel so colonial because, you know, it's that theory of racism, that racism is really unidirectional. It only happens from the more empowered to the less empowered. And so the less empowered can't really be colonial. So,
1: well, that's why, that's why I'm saying it's not the same thing.
0: Well, but, but, but I'm saying even, even if we talk about only the appropriations from uh, the less empowered by the more empowered, we're still going to get a whole bunch of things that you're claiming now are organic, like uh, Christianity I, itself.
1: Um. I, I maintain that, that rooting interfaith relationships in, in relationship and not in, in stealing other people's stuff is the right attitude. But that, you know, what we haven't talked about is, is the therefore, right? And I think the therefore varies depending on the case, right? I mean, you know, what is the therefore for somebody who's selling uh, Christian mezuzahs is a little bit different for a legacy of oppression of, of an entire people including you know theft of creative resources like we need to have a longer conversation you know like in both of those cases there's a conversation about tshuva about repentance about reparations about amends about what justice looks like moving forward but does that mean we never listen to any jazz music ever maybe not but what would repair look like you know what would an honest acknowledgement of that engender
0: before we return to the podcast, we want to let you know about digital learning on the College Commons platform. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, check out the online courses at collegecommons.huc.edu for in-depth learning, digital syllabi, assignments, inspiration for teaching, and one of our most influential courses called Making Prayer Real. Subscribe with your synagogue for all this and more. Just click sign up at collegecommons.huc.edu. Oh, and one more thing. Help us out and rate us on iTunes. But whatever you do, do not give us five stars unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. I want to ask you about feminism because you, uh, as I mentioned in my introduction of you, um, have um, something to say about feminism and... and (laughs) Um, I want to ask you uh, what you think the biggest challenge facing feminism is today, as opposed to just a few short years ago prior to the Me Too movement.
1: Um, so, I think, I mean, the biggest challenge inside feminism is, uh, it's not even, let's say, uh trans radical feminists, but I think they're mostly a distraction, honestly. But obviously, uh, gender expansiveness is really important. Um, but I think the biggest problem is uh, white supremacist patriarchy, honestly. Um, we began to move as a country towards a vision of um, making more room for more people to have more kinds of power. And, and Trump's election was a big win for... Um, people who want to, for, for, you know, white men who want to hold a certain kind of, of power over, um, and the implications of of that are, are, are so varied, right? There's, um, the absolute attack on, um, on reproductive rights, right? There's the family separation and the treatment of, um, of migrants in this country, which is a feminist issue. Um. You know, if you want to even just look, look at it through a, through a gendered lens, the issues around uh, sexual assault and trafficking and family separation, you know, this is massively gendered. Um, the ways in which uh, budgets um, for, you know, for SNAP, for example, for um, uh, uh, nutritional uh, assistance um, have been slashed and, you know, and the ways that the budget cuts are affecting people in poverty, like these are all feminist issues. And um, and our country's in a bad way right now.
0: Do, do you see uh, examples uh, mm-hmm. in the opposite direction maybe an evolution of feminism that has uh, grown to respond to these more recent challenges? Uh, you spoke of gender inclusivity. Is there is there are there counter trends that are encouraging you as well?:
1: Absolutely. Um, uh, people, mostly people who don't understand intersectionality want to talk about it um a lot it seems it seems obvious to me and i think main more mainstream feminism is kind of getting there finally that you, you in order to have a properly feminist lens you need to be making sure you're listening um to a marginalized voices um, whether that's, we're talking about women of color, trans and non-binary people, you know, disabled folks, uh, people who are, you know, people of color and disabled, right? That, that people who are coming from various perspectives have so much to bring to the conversation and so many profoundly important ways of understanding what's happening and ways of addressing solutions and um and, and looking at problems, so we need to be making sure that we're raising people up and amplifying them and and sharing power in a way that is ultimately going to be for everybody's good um, and you know and I, I I think I think it's getting
0: there, so it's good, so you do see some progress that's good, yeah, uh, I mean, you know it's two steps forward, one step back but do you do you think that intersectionality Um, as appears to have happened with the Women's March um, and some of the Jewish participants, that at least, not in a reductive way, that this is all it comes down to, but that it also inevitably requires um, conflict resolution or conflict negotiation between the different threads that constitute um, any given groups or persons' intersectionality.
1: I mean, listen, solidarity work is hard and it's messy. And if you think everybody's always supposed to agree on everything all the time and it's supposed to be very, um, you know, holding hands and singing and feeling inspired all the time, then you haven't done the work. Um, The work on the ground is hard. And it's because sometimes people are coming with very different perceptions of what's happening. Um, As we see, you we've seen uh, a number of times is, you know, uh, Jewish feminists and Muslim, f- and Muslim feminists, say, or Arab feminists, or whatever, you know, have tried to be in, in coalition together. Um, right? Sometimes the people have very different views. Sometimes people don't understand one another's views, which also sometimes is is the case there. Um, sometimes <clears throat> it's because somebody's not really listening, um, and it's usually somebody with more power isn't really listening to somebody with less power. Um, And sometimes there are places where we need to say we can agree on these three things and not this fourth. And that's going to have to be okay. Um, You know, I will happily join a Catholic delegation of folks going to fight the death penalty. No question. That is a shared interest. And when it comes to issues of reproductive rights, you know, many mainstream Catholics and I are going to agree to part ways. And I will see you on other opposite sides of the protest. And maybe that's okay. Um, and you know, we have to be able to have honest, um, honest conversations about that. Um, but it it does require a lot of, a lot of hard work and a lot of willingness to be open and listen to, to one another and to do, to, to be, you know, very challenged in, in your assumptions. Um, and you know, and sometimes it just requires coming together when you can.
0: The uh, I found very poignant and compelling your observation about deafness and the tendency for uh, the more empowered party to be yeah. deaf toward the less empowered party. Yeah. I wonder yes. if you've ever encountered a phenomenon that I have encountered a lot, which is a subset of that kind of deafness. The, deaf, the deafness of the empowered Towards the relatively less empowered, that is born of goodwill, in which the goodwill itself promotes the deafness.
1: Yes. Um, there can be a kind of a condescending paternalism that can happen when somebody is trying to be an ally and trying to collect their, their good ally cookies uh, that is extremely frustrating because it often comes in the form of somebody being so busy trying to perform their allyship that they do not hear the person speaking. And when they, that they do, um, they, um, it's not always comfortable. Uh, you know, and I say this, listen, I'm, I'm I'm Jewish and I'm a woman and I'm queer and whatever. And I'm also white and I'm also cisgendered and I'm also able-bodied. There are places where I have, been the privileged person in an exchange and struggled to really hear and probably places where I've wanted to show what a good ally I am. And there are places when I've been on the receiving end. And the lack of humility, um, you really like you just have to have a lot of humility. You know, it was one of the, the sort of most striking examples of this for me happened probably the week a week or two, maybe the week that Me Too was exploding. Um, so I, like every other woman in this country was completely raw and having a lot of feelings. And I'm part of a rabbinic, uh, Facebook group and someone in there, a guy said, well, I want to talk about this, but I don't want to trigger anybody. So how do I do that? And I suggested that he look at, um, a joke he had made, uh, you know, a few months ago in that forum and said, you know, like, listen, I I hear that you um that you're trying to show what a big ally you are but maybe you want to acknowledge that you did something that actually harmed us at which point he started calling me names um you know and I understand the feeling like he was so full of hope in that moment um that everybody was going to thank him for for uh his sensitivity and all of that and and it can be really really hard to be told to look in the mirror. And I've been, I have, it's happened to me many times and it's not comfortable. Um, but that's, you know, the work of trying to meet another human being where they are. Is that you have to be willing to per, to, to, to hear the person who's telling you that you,
0: uh,
1: you didn't do well this time.
0: Right. I mean, it, it recasts what it means to be an ally, as you're saying it, which is not just to show up, but also to open yourself up to change, which you may not have been bargaining for when you thought you wanted to be an ally.
1: (laughs) Right. In trying to work, uh, across in try to work with people who are different from you in any way whatsoever, which is probably most people in some way, um, just so much humility is required, you know?
0: Yeah, I do. I hope. Um, Thank you very much. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, I look forward maybe to seeing you in person one of these days. I would love that.
1: That'd be wonderful.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the College Commons podcast, available wherever you listen to your podcasts or at the College Commons website, collegecommons.huc.edu, where you can also stay tuned for future episodes.